Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. Hello, my name is Lee Hallman. I'm uh, Head of Design at Qatari DR Europe. Uh, we're a development company uh, that is funded from the state of Qatar, uh, and we basically uh, find development sites in Europe and uh, build hotels, uh, residences, office buildings, uh, and generally cre create communities around those projects. We tend to do the larger projects that, that, are, that contribute something more to a, a streetscape or a neighborhood. When you're trying to identify those uh, projects, what are you looking for? I think we're looking for exactly that. We're looking for an opportunity to put something more into a location, um, rather than just building sort of one-off buildings. Um, because I think when you do that, you can make a real difference in a, in a location. And the examples we have here in London are Chelsea Barracks, 13-acre site. Uh, we're working uh, on a joint venture with a, another company on South Bank Place, which is right on the, on the River Thames, offices, residences, uh, retail, and also out at the former Olympic Village, again, a huge community of residential apartments. So it's really um, sites of scale, and sites that have opportunities to, to, to make a difference, to, to transform that, that uh, setting and the community that, that lives within it. They sound like three very different conditions, Chelsea Berks, South Bank Place and the Olympic Village. So it might be interesting to just hear a little bit about each of those. Yes, I think um, the differences are really um, the, the, the specification level. Um, they're all community uh, generating. But uh, probably South Bank's uh, place has more of an office component to it, as well as the residential, whereas the Olympic Village is, is all residential and, and retail. Um, and it's, it's residential that people rent rather than buy. So there's going to be more than 5,000 homes there when we finished uh, out at Stratford, uh, with at East Village is the, is the title of it. Um, and then Chelsea Barracks is high-spec residential for sale. So we have apartments, we actually have townhouses, 15,000 square foot, down to about seven or 8,000 square foot houses. Uh, we have some retail, uh, and then in the, the, the later phases of, of the development, we also have a public sports facility um, and some affordable housing. So there's quite a, a spread of uh, offerings on the one 13-acre um, site. And in particular on that site, we reset the master plan to, to make it a, um, a, a site that was about city squares with buildings built around them. Uh, I think that's something that, that London's quite famous for. To, to Developers actually, even back in, in um, 200 years ago, did that very thing. They created Eaton Square, Belgrave Square, and then they built the buildings, the houses around it. And, uh, it makes for a, a much more um, balanced setting for, for the residences to be able to look out onto the squares. But the squares generally are public, and at Chelsea Barracks, they're all public. I mean, uh, Chelsea Barracks has a really interesting story because, of course, it was going to be a very different development, uh, and very publicly that was changed. I mean, it might be interesting to hear from your perspective and your journey through that, that story of what was going to be a kind of tower 
more Corbusian approach, I suppose, with towers in a, in a park landscape. Yes, the, the, the earlier scheme, I, I was involved with that um, when I was working for Candy and Candy. Uh, it wasn't a tower scheme so much. It was, uh, it was a more dense scheme than the scheme that we have now. Um, the, the, the scheme that was uh, put forward there was a more contemporary architecture and um, had more affordable housing units on it and more market housing units on it. So when um, uh, the, the scheme was withdrawn from being submitted for planning, uh, the, uh, the plan was to, the, the idea was to uh, start again with a scheme that wasn't as dense because uh, we felt that um, that was really the thing that made it more challenging um, to, to, to get uh, public support for. Eventually, the, the, this previous scheme did get uh, the majority of public support. There were a few residences that were against it, um, but uh, it got to the stage where the residents were okay with the changes that had been made. We'd changed massing, we'd brought in Thomas Heatherwick, uh, et cetera, uh, to work on the landscape. But the new scheme, was a completely different approach in that it started, as I say, from setting out a series of squares, seven public squares, all different sizes, different orientations, and then coming up with an architecture that's uh, more rooted in the context of Belgravia. So that the context of Belgravia is um, punched window buildings, if you like. They're stucco buildings. They're actually a render with, with windows in rather than a glass facades, like a contemporary uh, set of buildings. Um, and so that's quite a different language of architecture. So what we uh, proposed in the planning scheme for the, uh, the first three phases of the reset was a series of buildings that were planned in stone rather than the, the, the render of the, the Belgravia. So we've changed the specification level, but they follow very much the, the punched window approach that the rest of the buildings in Belgravia have. But rather than just copying those buildings, but making them in stone, we set the brief for the architects to uh, bring some contemporary elements to the detailing, to the language of the buildings. So they're not just a pastiche or a replica. They're actually of their own time, but very much rooted in the history of the, of the neighborhood. What, what ended up happening was this kind of revival of the idea of the style wars, which were such a big part of the the story of British architecture, really, had become, become this seminal moment where this debate between contemporary and pastiche and traditional. And I think it's interesting, you know, trying to navigate that, like you say, to be kind of contextual but not. And then also the pressures of, of mix and what that greater density maybe allowed you to put into the scheme, which, of course, at a lower density makes it mm. a slightly different equation. So. I'm, I don't know that that's a question, but it's just uh, almost um, a commentary around the challenge. And then, you know, the words that you use around the language of the architecture, and that's still being so important. I mean, what what is it about um, contemporary or traditional or you know pastiche or et cetera that continues to have you know such a such a debate um, mm. and and become a a flashpoint in... Mm. I think what happened back in when that debate was being had about um, um, the language of architecture, the postmodernism debate, was that there was the usual pendulum swing. So you got a very extreme reaction to, to architecture that perhaps was without language, that wasn't rooted in certain uh, pieces of, of, of architecture that say they're from a particular period or, or whatever. You got a complete pendulum 
pendulum swing away from the international architecture that could be anywhere to architecture that was almost too much language, you know, the really overt things that um, some of the really strong postmodernists were doing in the 80s when I was studying architecture. So I think what's happening now is the pendulum is kind of finding a middle point. I don't think um, there's such a polemic between contemporary and, and, and classical or historic. And actually, I think we see it in the buildings that we're building now with Eric Parry in phase four. So the rules that were set with the outline consent that we um, uh, achieve with uh, master planners, um, Jeremy Dixon Jones and, and Squire and Partners, was a, uh, a series of massing, a series of uh, rules about materiality and the punched window um, kind of approach to things. Um, and with those rules, Squires did phase one, the three apartment buildings, and phase one with the 67 apartments, and PDP London did the 13 townhouses, uh, and they're now completed and uh, uh, have come out exceptionally well. And then when Eric Parry was set the same rules, um, he came up with an architecture that was, it was, um, it reads like a punched window. They read like punched window stone buildings and two of the three buildings are very much like that. They're very much like the buildings that Squires have designed. But the centerpiece building of the, of the whole of Chelsea Barracks is a little more subtle in that it, it actually is, is it has um, the main two fa facades of the building are made up of, um, columns that are set away from the facade with rounded, they're kind of rectangular columns with heavily rounded corners to them. So they're very soft, but they read like a punched window building, but actually from the inside, you're looking through a continuous glass facade. So you've got a very contemporary, if you like, interior experience. Um, you're looking at these wonderful columns from the inside as well, and then from the outside, they belong in the context. And I think that's the line that's, that's really being walked now by, by architects that are taking on board this challenge. Um, they're finding ways to use contemporary technology um, in a way that brings uh, different um, opportunities, but they're still respectful of some of the rules and proportions uh, and, and materiality of, of the past. Uh, and I think that's I think that's where the pendulum is sort of settling in a place where people are not one side or the other so much. I mean, there are some architects, obviously, that are, but um, especially when you're building in London or in cities with such history, you know, you do have a, there's all this sort of ghost whispering in the back of your head that you've got to listen to about what you're building within, uh, rather than just plonking something down that contrasts. And I think that's where Chelsea Barracks has been incredibly successful. Um, it's um, the, the three, the, the four phases that we're building now and the, and the two to come all follow those rules. Um, but they're each, each of the, the uh, phases have a, a nuance to them, a slight difference. So they're not, they're not just a repeat of, of where we started as well. In Chelsea Vex, some, it's, some of it is very high end. And there is this sense, are these places occupied? Are, will people live there? Will, you know, is the expectation that these will be second homes or, or part year homes? And, and that must impact to a certain extent the kind of place it will be and how many people will be walking down the street in that sense of, of density or city. Do you have a sense of that right now? Or is that hard to gauge? 
I mean, we, we obviously are, are aware of the purchases that have, that have purchased. Uh, we've sold 85% of the homes. Um, so we know their, um, uh, the reason why they're buying. Um, and the vast majority are buying, it's not their first home, the, the, the vast majority. For some, it will be their primary residence. But when it's not their first home, they're, they're intending to spend more than a few days a, a year in these homes. The people that are buying at that price point can buy in various locations. Uh, and I think what's special about the Chelsea Barracks location is that it's, it, it's setting beyond the, the, the um, perimeter of, of the Chelsea Barracks, if you like, site. It, it's very residential. It's, it's very domestic. It, it's not the sort of place where you'd come into London and spend a week and want to go to Harrods every five minutes or go to, you know, into the shops of Mayfair. You go, you'd go there and you'd live there. When we were marketing the, the apartments, one of the key um, things we had on this interactive map was the walking distance to the local schools. Um, it's surrounded by parks. It's, it's right near the river. Um, it's right near the, 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 the new Battersea Power Station development across the river, which is going to have all sorts of incredible facilities in it, including shopping, etc. So I think the people, it feels to me that the people that have bought at Chelsea Barracks have bought there because they want to be in the best place, the best facilities, the best architecture and, and interiors, but also they want to be in that location because it's, it's a very residential location. And talking about those squares, which you said were, were public squares, and then the affordable, which is coming down the line, how do you see that, that those spaces developing? Do you think people will be coming to spend the day in Chelsea Barracks? Is it more of a passing use of these spaces? Or is it kind of, is that green space intended to be used by the affordable housing? It's, it's already happening. So it was a great moment for me because I've been on the project. Well, I had a gap for a bit, but I've been on the project since, since 2007. So it was a great day for me when I walked through the site after it had opened up to the public to see people walking through with their dogs. They weren't living there because people hadn't moved in at that point, but they were just cutting through the site. And that's exactly how it was designed. We did all sorts of um, people movement studies to see whether people would use the shortcuts through to get from, I don't know, Victoria Station through to Sloan Square and things like that. And, and that's what's happening. Um, some of the dogs are spending too long there and uh, using the garden. Um, but so, and, and I see that happening uh, more because obviously at the moment, we have only really opened up a third of the site to, to the public. Um, the largest square that we're, that we're providing to, to London um, is coming in phase four. Um, and that very much is a, a big green space that you can just go and sit in and, and read a book um, in the sunshine. The buildings are set back from the square. So I think people will dwell in that square. The Whistler Square and Mulberry Square, the two that you can walk through now, are more spaces that you'll go through. You can sit, there are seats, and you can sit by the flowers, etc. And there's an incredible sculpture by Conrad Shawcross. But there, I, can't, I couldn't see people sort of spending an hour, their lunch hour, sitting in the sun reading a book so much. They're more kind of interactive. Um, but certainly, and then uh, there are two more squares that follow with the um, phase six, which is where the affordable housing and the public sports centre is. I think the public sports centre itself will bring a huge number of people, including school groups, to, to that facility. It has two swimming pools, uh, four badminton courts, a gym. Um, so I think the more, as, as Chelsea Barracks builds out, more people will come. It's not going to be crammed with people, obviously, because it's it's not that part of it's not that sort of part of London. It's not like that, but it will be permeated by people. 
perambulating with their sun umbrellas <laughs> in a Victorian way, <laughs> but not a pastiche. <coughs> when you think about placemaking in that sense of that sense of mix, I mean, I think it's interesting because you look at you know Chelsea Barracks and uh, and the mix of things there: the sports centre, the affordable, the housing, the squares, and then when you talk about South. South Bank Place with its offices in Resi and the Olympic Village with its slightly different mix. Mm. How, where is your thinking with um, with kind of ideal mixes for placemaking or ideal? I mean, there's there's turmoil in the retail industry. There's changes from owner occupation to rental. There's concerns that maybe that community is more transient and their needs are slightly different. But I guess it's just um, where is your where is your thinking and what are the challenges around? curating place? Mm, it's a really good question. I think um, mature and intelligent cities need to understand um, the benefits of mixed use. Um, sort of younger cities that are more polarized in that you know, the workplace is here, the shops are here, the living is here, um, have lef less of a 24-hour cycle. And as a result, they're less sustainable. There's more travel required. So. Um, as a, as a diagram, a mixed-use uh, development, whether it be the size of Chelsea Barracks or East Village, um, works very well. At East Village, we have people that, that live in the village and work in the village, and they shop in the village. They can do that. Obviously, they can go elsewhere. But that, that helps create a community that is sustainable and there's not money spent on travel, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, South Bank Place is slightly different in that it's right in the centre of London. Um, it is mixed use. There's an affordable housing tower. It's on the top of a tube station that we've, we've provided. Uh, there's market uh, residential of different spec levels. Uh, there's office buildings and there's retail. There's all those mixes there, but the centre of London is like that. So it's kind of replicating what we have in the centre of London. Um, Chelsea Barracks is slightly different in uh, there are constraints in um, the various boroughs uh, in London of, of what you, which use types you can put in certain areas to preserve residential areas or even to preserve uh, retail areas. So um, there wasn't a use class for office in Chelsea Barracks. It probably wouldn't work there. Um, there's some retail. There's going to be an incredible uh, restaurant there and, and, and some more shops um, near the uh, Chelsea Barracks Chapel. And there's also going to be an art facility within that chapel. So there's that kind of mix of use. Um, but there's less of the, the work and live uh, combination. So I think it, it's, it depends on the location. Um, but I think as a principle, a mix of uses is, is definitely um, a more positive way to, to, um, to bring life into a city over a 24-hour cycle and, and it's more sustainable. Do you leave any bits unfinished or unresolved? In what way? You well, mean? I guess the sense that it might um, not work the way you think it will, or the retail, or the restaurant, or etc. Is there, where is, where do you do you leave any room for kind of evolution? Absolutely, I think you have to. Um, one of the challenges with the first round of Chelsea Barracks is that the obligation was set on the developer to provide a detailed planning consent for the entire thirteen acres in one go, and that. Um, was a slightly odd obligation because th that amount of accommodation and the various facilities would, would not have been built in one go. And um, as we've seen uh, over the 
um, five years that we've been building phases one to four, uh, the market has changed. The, um, the, the appetite for sizes of apartments has changed, et cetera. Sizes so I think, of retail units. Exactly. So, so I think the, um, the onus is on developers to keep their eyes open. It's not a matter of getting a consent and then just building it no matter what with the blinkers on. In fact, we, uh, we had um, a certain mix in, in what we're calling Building 6, the first building that's being built in Phase 4. And we, we recognized, actually, we think we could put a few more units in that building, a few more homes that were a bit smaller. Uh, a lot of that size of apartment we'd already sold in uh, phase, phase 1. And so we, we changed the mix. We added a few more apartments into that building before we then went out to tender and, and started to build it. So I think it's it's important to keep an eye on the market, uh, not just residential mix-wise, but as you say, re retail, what will sell. There's a, there's a supermarket in the, in the last phase um, that was part of the planning obligation. Um, and when we got consent for it, uh, the nature of supermarkets has changed a bit in London. We, you have three scales of supermarkets. You have the big ones with the big trucks that pull up and unload everything, and you can spend an hour shopping in it. You have the middle-sized ones, and you even have the little Sainsbury's local or Tesco's local. And uh, so we had to kind of rethink about well, which which supermarket is right for the area, which supermarket is right for the for the building and for the other uses of wrapping around it. So yeah, I think you have to be very alert. It's a long process, though, building. So at some point, you have to commit and get on with it. And then there's the mix of of t tenancies and tenures, and you know, which these people will have different needs in terms of supermarket or retail or et cetera. And how much do you think about, and there have been, um, we wrote recently around uh, Manchester Media City, different, very office-based, but also residential. And some of the people there were saying, you know, there just, there isn't a pharmacy, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, how much do you have to also think um, about the needs of, of residents versus the people who are going to come to go to a great restaurant or to, yeah. to peruse some boutiques? Yeah, in terms of Chelsea Barracks, the restaurant that we have there is is right in the heart of the development. And we, we, we're very conscious of the neighbours around. Um, it, it, is, it will be a very, um, uh, it will be a fine dining experience. It won't have hun hundreds of people, you know, tab tables turning around every two hours. Um, so there's that that we've considered. I think the other thing is, in our PRS portfolio, the private rental sector portfolio, so East Village and the other Get Living projects that we have around the UK, um, you can't just provide rental accommodation in, in an isolated location. You, you have to think about whether it's within the buildings, the amenities, the, the gyms. Uh, there's all sorts of amenities that we're providing in our Portland Court building, which we're building at the moment at, at East Village. Um, so that's sort of within amenities. But then the creche is the... The um, obviously the retail, the, the corner shop to get the milk. You the know. social infrastructure. Exactly. And I think there are some other um, other private rental sector projects where the, the apartments have been built and the other stuff they're realizing still needs to come. And, and you've got to really provide them day one. You've got to provide them to help people to come. And the thing about rental accommodation is... Um, You've got to keep people there. You've got it's got to work. It's not just a matter of building the apartment and selling it. Um, the whole dynamic has got to work uh, around the apartment. You know the the how the how the apartment building is run, and also that it needs to be a a, a, a positive context for people to want to live in and to to stay longer. Maybe move from a one bed to a two bed. 
Um, so very much so. It's, um, Does experience in hotels help with that or hinder it because it's slightly different because they're staying for longer? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because we're doing a, a couple of hotels as well. Um, the Grosvenor the hotel in Grosvenor Square in the old uh, US Embassy, and we're, we're doing a hotel in Montenegro, Four Seasons Hotel in Montenegro. So it, it, there are a lot of parallels between the um, private rental sector operator, the company that we, we work with that's, um, that the JV partner uh, owns called Get Living, and the hotel operators. And the first one is they, the first thing they, they um, ask about or, or worry about is the durability of um, the finishes in the kitchen or the finishes in the bathroom, because obviously that's a main, that's a major component to a, uh, a rental accommodation operator, uh, and likewise a hotel operator. We had the, we had it this morning. We were in a meeting this morning about our Grosvenor Square hotel, and um, it was all about things bumping corners and with your wheelie bag and will that be robust enough? So it's not just a matter of making it beautiful, but it, making it beautiful after you know year one. Uh, of use, so yeah, it's it's um, it's a different state of mind. The the building with with long term occupation in mind, um, and it, it's a very um, useful experience to have gone through to then think about that for the projects that we're selling as well. Because you may sell it, but the person who buys it uh, still um, wants that that property to have longevity and to be robust. Do you see private rental as continuing to grow? It's, it's a really interesting, interesting thing in London because it's, it's not something that's been um, common um, until the last, I suppose, three or four years it started to become more popular with developers. All, all sorts of different reasons. Early on, there wasn't a clear affordable housing equation for a, a, a PRS project. Um, uh, there were developers that were thinking, we'll start off as PRS, but if the market picks up, we'll then sell them all. Um, so there's, there was a lot of that at the beginning. Um, but when you look overseas, you look to the States, you look to, 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 to Europe, um, e even, even Scotland um, has a sort of a tenant, uh, tenant building um, mentality, people renting in, in, um, in uh, multiple unit buildings. Uh, and I don't know what, what is different, why it's different in London. I suppose one of the things is the for sale product and the valuing up of a for sale product in London has always been incredibly, um, has always performed incredibly well, whether it's for a private person buying a house and waiting for the market to go up and selling it. And so the, the, the rental yield has never really figured in the same way in that equation for a developer. Um, I, I think Obviously, we've had a flat spot in, in London with all the, the indecision about um, politics, etc., and, and a, a, a different type of yield, a longer-term asset yield, rather than a buy, you know, build and sell um, uh, return, uh, has become a, a viable option. The, the other thing about it is, I think people's mentality to assets has changed. Um, you know, people rent their phone rather than owning it. They rent their car rather than owning it. And I think people, younger people, are thinking, well, why would I, you know, shackle myself to a mortgage for whatever it is, 25 years, when I can just be nimble? I can rent that property and then I can move on and rent another property. So I think that's, that's something that we're seeing as well. Well, it's hard to change for them because a lot of them can't yeah, get, they can't get mortgages or, yeah. yeah 
because of the um, student debt they're carrying, et cetera, they, they, they're cred they effectively have no credit. So I think, I think that um, I only say that because it's often framed, phrased as choice, but often I think it's circumstance. Because um, I think many of them that I've spoken to feel under great pressure to buy still from the generation above them. Uh, but actually, if unless that generation can kind of bridge them with financing, there, there really isn't an opportunity for them to. Um, but I think it does shift the developer mentality and all of a sudden, like you're saying, becoming, you know, effectively becoming more of a landlord, more of an asset manager. That's a very different thing to, to selling it. And, um, and a community creator. And it comes back to where we started because if you are building residences to rent out and to maintain, it's important that, that, that the, the, all the pieces that come together to make that, um, the residences and the pieces around it create a community because you want people to stay, you know, you, 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 want, you want it to feel like a good place to be. And what could be better than having that, um, if you like, constraint on a developer rather than a built it, sell it, I'm going to move on to the next site because there's a responsibility. Does that also change the sustainability approach in terms of, I don't know, heat efficiency or? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. In fact, we had this very question on um, a Montenegro hotel, questions about facade systems in Montenegro not needing to be as onerous as they were uh, in the UK when our original designer had built the facades. And um, you know, it's more cost effective to build with a slightly less insulation or whatever. And we looked at it and we looked at the running cost of the hotel and we decided it's more sustainable, obviously, to build a more sustainable envelope, but it's also more cost effective at a PRS level. Obviously, that applies uh, every, every minute of the day, you know, how the water systems are done, um, ex solar exposure, um, so you're not overheating, the glazing, um, uh, the buildups, all of those things are, are core to that. Yeah. Even water conservation. Yeah. I remember uh, Singapore Hotel talking to me about all of their approaches because obviously they have the air conditioning bills and the um, and water being a big issue there, um, and just trying to make all of the showers feel luxurious but actually mm. <laughs> be um, very water saving. And I think it's interesting to see that if that comes in with PRS, that more that consciousness of, of economy. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of our PRS um, properties. Uh, it's an all-in price so um, for certain facilities. So we have to think about how those, um, the running costs for those all-in facilities. So you, you worked on the original scheme and how it was laid out then. There was the, the intervention of Prince Charles. We've ended up with a very mm -hmm. different scheme. Mm -hmm. Do you have a preference? <laughs> I think uh, the, the, prefer the buildings that we have now, the scheme that we have now, is, is the right scheme for the location. Um, I was heavily involved with the earlier scheme meetings with Graham Sturck and, and Lord Rogers. Um, and so I, I'm well aware of the qualities of that scheme and the, the architectural merits. I think it had a lot, it had to achieve a lot. Um, the, the number of homes that were required to make the development stack up, the fact that it had to be a detailed planning consent from the beginning. Um, for the whole site made it very difficult to come up with something that um, was easy to communicate. Um, I think there were a lot of um, there was a lot of listening that happened through that period 
and a lot of changes that were made. Um, we brought another architect onto the project, uh, a company called AHMM, who took on about um, two-fifths of the, of, of the site and that um, adjusted the, the buildings, the language of the buildings a bit. And then, as I said earlier on, we uh, also brought T Thomas Heatherwick on. Uh, that was many years ago, maybe 10 or so years ago. Um, and he did all sorts of um, work on the landscaping and also worked with uh, Roger Sturck Harbour on uh, changing the massing of the buildings to the, to the rear of the site, where we were trying to be more empathetic to the houses uh, to the back. So it, it, was, a, it was a very um, carefully developed um, scheme, but ultimately I think uh, it, it, it had to achieve too much and perhaps it, it was a little, it could have been a little more deferential to, to the context. Um, so yeah, the, the current scheme is, it just belongs and that, that's the important thing I think. So more, more a question of, of density, of, of fitting too much As soon on as site. you change the density, you change the scheme. You know, even if we'd had the same architecture, the scheme would have felt very different. One of the big opportunities that came up with changing the density and, and the reset with uh, Jeremy Dixon, Edward Jones and um, Squires was the introduction of the townhouses. So we didn't have a townhouse uh, typology in the original uh, Roger Sturck Harbour and uh, AHMM scheme. But what we have now is the, the, if you like, the front of the Chelsea Barracks site is a linear frontage onto Chelsea Bridge Road facing onto the Royal Hospital, a World Heritage, Sir Christopher Wren building, um, magnificent building. So it's a very grand um, and, and composed facade and a linear facade, if you like, to the, to the front of our site facing onto that World Heritage site. The rear facade is actually the line of the original Westbourne River that used to run um, to the Thames uh, and kind of along the what's the back of our site. And it was quite a wiggly line like rivers tend to be. And that line, uh, we were able to, with, with um, PDP London and um, a company called Piercy & Co, who've designed the phase five um, townhouses to the, to, the rear facade, to the rear boundary of the site, to use that wiggly facade to be basically taken up by the, the gardens at the end at the back of the houses, or in some cases, little orangeries that are placed uh, at the ends of the gardens. So on the one hand, we have a house backing onto another house, so the gardens are facing gardens. Uh, we have uh, an interesting irregular geometry that breaks up the massing. Um, and, and we have um, essentially a, a, a use type that, that, that is very Belgravia. Um, Eaton Square, Belgravia Square, Chester Square, their rows of, of townhouses, incredible, grand, very expensive townhouses. And, and uh, so we have that now. It's, it's a unique offering in London. And, and they really are incredibly well um, finished inside and out. And, and the same approach to the outside of building on um, the historic proportions and windows and, and using the, the Portland stone. Um, has been used on the inside, so that the insides aren't stripped out and contemporary. They're, they have layers, they have cornices, um, but some of the, the languages of those cornices are just slightly more modern. Uh, some of the materials they used are slightly more modern and they're maybe less super polished glossy stone and, and a slightly more um, honed stone because that's slightly more contemporary. So there's all sorts of interesting nuances on the inside that continue that theme of being contemporary and being contextual. 
you have this mix of architects. Um, and we started talking about the estates and how they were originally conceived, and often they were more singular mm. in their approach. So, why, why and and how do you do you kind of choose that? I don't know that. It's, that it's an interesting question has. because the the previous scheme. I remember having a conversation with Graham Sturk about this. Um, was a scheme that was rightly wanting to respect the scale of Chelsea Bridge Road and the grand estates, the, the Cubit, et cetera, the, the grand estates of Belgravia and um, other parts of um, London, by making a grand, not singular gesture, but, but continuous, a statement that says, this is, this is one place. Um, and I think that was right. And to be to have that statement across the road from the Royal Hospital, which is an even bigger scale of statement of, of grandeur, and, um, was right. And, and what was important when we were selecting the architects to design the specific buildings within the already consented overall master plan, I, I remembered what Graham had said about that. And what we've managed to do is to is to it will feel like. It will feel like Chelsea Barracks in 100 years' time. It will feel like an entity um, that was built over a period of a few years. Um, but it is made up of, of subtly different architecture by you know, some different architects. There's not 15 different architects. Um, and so there's the, the big gesture of it feels like one thing, but then there's the, the next scale gesture that each of the architects have brought their own nuance to the materiality or the detailing. Um, uh, Etc. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's. I, I think we didn't want it to be. It would have been wrong if all the architecture was the same. I don't think that. Um, Find it too think, singular, or I, I too, think so, yeah. too too much of a statement or an imposition. Yeah, and also, I mean, that those those estates were built quite quickly, and and and. Today, you, you can't really sell the amount of residential that, that we're building at Chelsea Barracks over all six phases in two years. There just isn't the market for that. And so to kind of start with one type of architecture and know that in 15, 20 years, you'll still be doing the same just doesn't feel right. Doesn't feel right for the people that you want to buy at the other end. You know, so, so we haven't slavishly followed the architecture. But I think the big picture, the sort of squinty eye test, it will feel like it's in a in a state, um, but not a, a row of identical properties. When you go to Stratford, and even the South Bank, it's a lot more higgledy pickledy in terms of style, especially Stratford, which has this kind of blank canvas that's all kinds of colours and shapes of kind of. So what you're you're really in in a kind of odd. Um, mix for for London. There isn't the same strong sense of, of style or, or grandeur even. So what, where do you start? In there? Stratford, um, I agree. Stratford is a, it's, it can, it's a bit of an anywhere place uh, in terms of the architecture. The buildings could be from anywhere. But when you go into East Village, um, there is a strong personality to the architecture there. Um, and that's deliberate. So when the master planners were designing the Olympic Village, there were a set of rules that they set for all the, the many different architects there uh, for the East Village part. But they all had a, a constraint on certain type of materiality. There's a lot of um, 
precast concrete uh, facades, uh, framed buildings rather than all glass buildings. So we've continued that story in our later development phases that we're building now. We've completed one last year and we're going to come uh, halfway through one this year. In order to give it its own identity, to not jar. So I'd like to think that what we're, and we've got a, three more buildings to come there, is that we're, we're, when you go into East Village, you'll feel like you are in something. As we said at the very beginning, it, it will have an identity. Um, not a slavish identity, there's different architects, but there's a, there's a thread there. They're all of the same family. Um, uh, to provide that kind of uh, relief from the, the zoo of buildings that you can get in some, in some developments. Um, South Bank, again, it has, uh, Squires did the master plan there. There is an overarching uh, framing to the, to the architecture. We're finishing, we're, we're just completing the drawings for the last building there now, and that will have the same um, tonal materiality as the others. So there is a, a story that ties it together. There's one kind of all glass building there, which is a, um, an office building. But um, it, it, has a, it has an identity. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly dense master plan there because of where it is. But yeah, I, th I think that's important. I think, um, I mean, there are other developments that I think have, have, have a number of different architects, but they've selected them well. They haven't, uh, they've given them some freedom and it hangs together. Um, but, but it's not the norm. I think you do need to be very aware of each of the offerings in a, in a big master plan and make sure that, because that's really the developer's responsibility because um, they're the ones that are selecting these designers. You know. That's where my role is interesting here because I, I get to see that bigger picture of, of, each of the, how each of the designers are going to inter, interact with one another, whether it's inside or the, art, the artist, the sculptor, and all those sorts of things. So you do get that identity. If you zoom out, I guess, just as a f final look at, um, at London in the context of these three projects that you're working on or just the city. What kind of a place do you think London is, is becoming? Uh, I think it's got the density uh, um, agenda now. I, I think about um, 20 years ago, the, the shot of London with the, the Nat West Tower. Um, it's a very different shot now from whichever position you take it. Um, and it's not just the city of London that's more dense. There's uh, Canary Wharf. There's obviously what's happening in Vauxhall. Uh, and, and uh, some things happening in, in Paddington, etc. So I think it's it's a if it's well um, uh, controlled is too strong a word. If, if it's well nudged by the local authorities, um, then I think it will make it a better city, a stronger city. I think it can take it. You look at the densities of other great cities around the world and. Um, density is, can be a very positive thing if handled well. So I think it's getting more dense. Um, if you had one nudge to give the local authorities, what would it be? I think their developers are the people that put the money up and build buildings. And it's, it's great that there are obligations put on those developers to provide all sorts of various things, public spaces, affordable housing, et cetera, et cetera, and constraints on height, massing, sight lines, all of those things. Um, <clears throat> and I would just encourage, some boroughs understand it more than others. I would encourage the boroughs to just understand the development equation because um, it, if it doesn't work financially, 
nothing will be built. Um, so it's just getting the balance right. So there's, a, there's, enough, uh, there's enough sort of flexibility in there to actually make building a building or building a master plan or whatever viable um, at the same time as obviously delivering the obligations which are important to make a broader community positive. And I think we've seen it fluctuate. Uh, we've seen it fluctuate in various boroughs actually in the, in the sort of 20 or so years I've been doing this where some boroughs have, have understood it very well and, and they've worked with developers and we've had some great projects out of it. City of London was, was very strong for a long period there. Um, it's had changes, still, still strong. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the thing really. It's just understanding that um, it's a complex equation to, to build a building of, of substance in a, in a city like London with all the constraints. And, and developers want, want to work with those constraints, whether it's sustainability, affordable housing, all the various things. But there's a point at which it just doesn't work and, and you just don't build. You don't buy the land, you don't build the building and then you just, your city doesn't grow. So the local authorities are saying, can we trust you? Can we, tr can we trust you? That's the you? thing. But if, we do, if there isn't a dialogue, if we don't understand each other's approach, then uh, it's hard to move forwards. You know? And that's, it's happened before. We've had it, those relationships have been there in many different boroughs over many years. And it's just making sure that, um, that, that, that we're talking to one another, really. That's great. Just thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.